believe that God is using all the churches in Flagstaff to um, reach Flagstaff. But once a month, we like to take a moment and do something called an all-of-life interview. And so Lindsay can come on up, and I'll explain what that is as she comes up. Um, but basically, an all-of-life interview is a time we take where we interview someone in a vocation that is not ministry. Because what we believe here is that all of life is all for Jesus. And so what we think is that in every vocation, um, Jesus is here and working and using you and and using you even as a missionary in a sense, even though you're not a professional missionary. So with that said, we're going to uh, interview Lindsay Chance today. And so Lindsay, um, actually, yeah, clap for her. So I got to get this mic. Here you can use this mic. So, Lindsay, just uh, tell us what you do. Describe your work for us, please. Is this on? Okay. Um, yes. So, basically, I work in retail. I work for a small, locally owned business called The Light Company. Um, we basically sell lighting and fine furniture, lighting for both um, residential and commercial applications, furniture, and just lots of beautiful things to fill your home with. Um, on any given day, I interact with customers who are, you know, just shopping, looking to furnish their homes, um, home, homeowners or home builders who are building or remodeling their homes. I work with contractors, builders, designers, etc. Um, aside from just basic customer service, ringing people up, making sales, um, placing special orders, that kind of thing. My behind-the-scenes job includes a little bit of accounting, so I just make sure, keep track of all of our businesses' bills and credits, make sure we're paying for the things that we need to pay for and getting credited for either things that don't come in, come in damaged, that kind of a thing. Yeah, so a lot. <laughs> she does a lot. So, uh, so anyways, uh, we believe, so as we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, we also think that all of humankind has God's image on them. And so we, we like to take uh, our different vocations and say this question, which is, so as God's image is on you as an image bearer, how do you reflect God's image through your work? Yeah, so I think that um, in retail, re- the retail industry in itself just generally reflects the servant nature of Jesus. Um, my job is to serve people, whoever walks through the door, whether they're kind or not so kind. Um, I am faced with humbling situations every day, constantly learning, always making mistakes and always growing. Um, just re- and it just reminds me of the humble nature of Jesus, constantly living his life in complete obedience to the Father. Um, my job also includes cleaning bathrooms and scrubbing floors and making sure that the showroom is always clean. Um, tasks that aren't so glamorous, but that are necessary for the success of the business, basically. And it's just, you know, it reminds me of, of God coming himself. We don't, we don't hire a cleaning service to do those things. We do it ourselves. Kind of like God coming to the earth clothed in human flesh to atone for our sins himself. Um, Nothing was glamorous, really, about Jesus coming to earth, being born in a manger, and yeah. No, that's great. That's awesome. And so even though we, we reflect God's image, we also we understand that the world is broken and there's sin in it. And so, Lindsay, how does your work um, give you a unique vantage point into the brokenness of the world? Yeah, uh, like I said, never know what's going to walk in the door on any given day. Um, as believers, we understand that everyone is fighting their own unique battle against sin, whether it's greed or pride or selfishness or entitlement. Um, I see people all the time who come in who are just at their wit's end. Um, 
probably working in some kind of a home project. Maybe they're over budget. Maybe they've been taken advantage of by a contractor. Or they're just flat out afraid of being taken advantage of in general. They've seen, you know, the worst in a lot of people. And they just kind of assume the worst when they come to people like us. So they're kind of abrasive, defensive kind of thing. Um, work is hard, and we all know that. I We have to remember it's an opportunity, like a great opportunity to be able to work. God ordained us to work and has given us work to be fruitful. Um, but it's not always easy. People let us down. We let other people down. Oh, absolutely. And as uh, I, me and Lindsay met earlier in the week kind of talk about this, and I used to work real t- retail too, and I, I was just expressing to her how hard that is and so uh, how difficult it can be working in retail for all these kinds of reasons she's saying and so kind of another question I wanted to ask you Lindsay was so as a follower of Christ how do you deal with with all that brokenness that you're encountering all the time sure um on a professional level I just try to practice a lot of empathy um, and patience for customers when things don't go right it might not be the end of the world if you know a furniture order is delayed and takes a few months to get in but to some of my customers it is the end of the world or you know, some light fixtures end up back-ordered for a month. Like, it's a big deal to them. I, I know that it's not that big of a deal. But just, like, practicing that kind of an empathy, putting myself in their place, giving them the benefit of the doubt when things don't go right, understanding that you know, we're all broken and we all react differently to different circumstances. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, and then my final question for you is, so as Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, how does, how does your work function as that? Like, so how does your work function as a way to love and serve your, your neighbor? Yeah. Um, I'm in a unique position because I have the privilege of working for a business that's owned and operated by Christians. Um, so prayer and conversations about God are not out of the ordinary. Um, but that doesn't mean that <laughs> we're all perfect. We still struggle with one another. Um, but it's, it's so beautiful to be able to extend the grace to one another. Like, people come into our store um, often and just stroll around, walk around, like to visit with us. Uh, We're told all the time that people like to just come in because it's a beautiful place and they feel peace and hope and joy there. And I don't think it's any coincidence that it's a business that's so rooted in prayer and committed to to preaching the truth that, that people, you know, can feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in places like that, even if they don't recognize that that's what it is. So really, I mean, it's just loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus commands us to do, loving your enemies when people don't treat you right. Um, We all need a Savior. We all love our Savior, Jesus. And it's just, it's a beautiful opportunity sometimes to be able to to share that with people that don't understand that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for doing that. Um, The next thing we like to do is we actually like to pray for anyone here uh, that's in the retail industry. And so um, anyone here that's working retail, you could be a student um, and working in retail. You could be working full-time in retail, whatever. So would you stand for me? I know it's awkward, but there should be a bunch of you. I feel like I know a lot of people. So anyone retail, any kind of store that's retail-ish, please stand. And we're going to just pray for you and pray for Lindsay and just pray as you guys affect Flagstaff and, and you make known that all life is all for Jesus. And then we'll also pray for Vince and, and get, get into the sermon here. So everyone else, pray for me for... Uh, all of these uh, lovely retail associates. And so, God, I just thank you um, for Lindsay and, and everybody else that's in retail that, uh, that you would uh, just help them just find you in all of their work. You know, God, uh, I think retail can be very hard and very um, uh, stressful a lot, God, because there's just so many things that, uh, 
that they do and so many ways that they have to interact with people, so many um, kind of faces almost they have to put on to, to help uh, love and care for people. And so, God, help them to do that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help them to, to see where um, you can empower them and use them and, and uh, move in them. And so, God, we thank you for our retail employees. We thank you for what they do and helping uh, uh, bring more of your love into this world. And so, God, especially I want to pray for anybody in retail that— um, has been having a hard time, that you would just come in and uh, alleviate some of that for them. And so, God, we love you and we need you. Amen. And then let's clap for Lindsay and all the retail people. All right. I have a hard time believing there's only five people in here that are working retail. Okay? I've worked in retail from, I think, it was pretty much 15 to about 24 or 23, and so I think there's a lot of you who are lying, okay? And I'm going to catch you, okay? Um, in fact, if I show up to one of your stores and see your face, I'm going to pray for you right there in front of your entire staff, okay? Uh, but no, again, I, I must say retail, it's, it's like most jobs, and like they said, work is tough, but, but I really think, man, you get in retail and you begin to ask the questions of, uh, what, what purpose is this? I mean, you know, sometimes you can kind of fall into these things of, of what is it doing in the grand scheme of things. And so we really try and do these interviews to try and paint this picture of how God is redeeming all the world through every person in every vocation. And, and there really isn't one that is more important than another, that God uses it all uh, to bring about the redemption of the world. And so thank you to all you guys who do that. Um, <clears throat> I want to point out something. A lot of you guys... We're probably looking forward to this, and even it was funny because as a prayer team, we got together earlier, uh, and we come up front and we pray, and someone was like, man, I just pray that, that, that you know, a lot of people come forward to get baptized today. Uh, and you might notice we have no baptismal set up this morning, and so we've actually canceled baptisms today, and so, uh, which is a bummer, um, but we had some people who wanted to do it who couldn't do it today, and we had no one who signed up that could do it today. And so we decided, I'm not going to force it, and... Uh, and honestly, I didn't want to put myself in a position where I would get this like super emotionally charged push on you guys to just start forcing you to come up here in some type of like, I'm bending your arm type of way. Baptism is something that as Christians we do as a response to the work of God in our lives and not by this emotional plea from the pastor. And so we decided, you know what, we're not going to do them today. Uh, but if you do want to get baptized and you just haven't talked to us about it yet, please come and talk to us. We're going to be setting one up real soon because we had a conversation with a couple people uh, who want to. So, uh, so be looking for that in the next kind of two, three weeks or so. The other thing I want to point out is everyone got an event card today, and so this should have been on your seat. Uh, we ran out uh, for every seat, so if you didn't get one, you really want one. There's almost always some laying on the floor after people leave because they're rude, and, um, and so uh, you can probably find one on the floor, but this is going to be October's event card. It will have everything that we're doing as a community in the month of October, and so if you have questions, if you want to sign up for something, you can reference everything right on this card, and we'll begin to highlight more and more things as we get closer to them um, in the month. I do want to point out, we do have a, the, the men's bowling tournament coming up next month, and I bring that up just to point out that the staff team is still the reigning champions, and uh, if you think you can beat us, you can. Okay. Mark chapter 12. Turn to Mark chapter 12. 
We are wrapping up this chapter, transitioning to chapter 13 next week. Okay, so if you don't have a Bible, we've got Ben, and I think we'll have someone coming down this aisle too. Please raise your hand, get a free Bible, follow along in the text as you go. So get your hand up high. Don't feel weird about this. We do it every week. People need Bibles. Grab one, follow with us. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, this is, uh, this is our free gift to you. Please take this one, keep it. If you have a friend who wants one, keep it and uh, give it to him or her. All right. Recap, the last couple weeks, we've been addressing this issue of the authority of Jesus. Jesus being very outspoken to say, listen, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, if you align with his mission, if you call yourself a disciple, you must and you should submit all of your life underneath the banner banner and authority of Christ. It doesn't belong anywhere else. It can't belong anywhere else. It has to be submitted to him, And so he uh, jumps into this argument. We kind of talk through all the reasons why this must be true for us. Um, if you missed any of that, please just go back, listen to the audio. What I want to do is culminate today, and I think it's really what we've seen over four chapters, from chapter 9 to the end of chapter 12 today, um, a four-chapter culmination of the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for us to follow Jesus. And we've said this very frequently. So if you've been here, I'm going to repeat it one more time. Okay, so for the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark, it was more about understanding and identifying who Jesus is, like who he is, what he's about. But then we get a transition in chapter 9, where God the Father in the transfiguration opens up the heavens and speaks down and says, this is my son Jesus, Listen to him, or follow him, or be his disciple. That's what disciple means. It just means follower. To follow someone or something is to be a disciple of that thing or that someone. So then the question led us from 9, from chapter 9, chapter 12, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? How do we follow him? How do we listen to everything that he said and say, okay, I'm going to take that now, apply it to my life, and go live this in the same way that he lived it in this world? Today's the culmination of that, that whole question. And so I want to recap, if I may, I want to recap, if I may, what he's done since chapter 9 and how he's already answered this question. I had to write it down because there was so much. But to answer the question, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Here's what we learned. In chapter 9, we learn from the healing of the boy with the unclean spirit that a disciple's faith is always in process. I believe, help my unbelief, was the man's proclamation. And that faith is not about trusting in his own ability, but in Christ alone. Disciples will be the last and servants of all, not seekers of self-glorification and gain. Disciples hate sin, never are to minimize it, and are always to be alert in its presence. Okay? Chapter 10, disciples lean not on their own understanding of this world to fulfill and dictate truth. The way we marry, handle our finances, and approach life is marked by childlike obedience to a father. Disciples don't let idols get in the way of knowing and making known their Lord. Disciples intentionally reflect on what God has done in their lives and their world, which moves them to ask instead, God, what can I do for you? Disciples humbly yet expectationally plead for God's continued grace and mercy and do not take it for granted. Chapter 11. Disciples follow even the craziest of the commands of Christ if he's the one commanding them. Disciples learn from past triumphs and failures to learn, grow, and attempt to do better. Disciples take on the call of God to go to the world, bringing peace, the shalom of God, blessed to be a blessing, and with his authority, the kingdom of God. 
Chapter 12, disciples creating God's image sit underneath the authority of God, giving over every aspect of their lives unto him, desires, hopes, careers, finances, relationships, their very breath. Disciples know, study, and engage the scriptures. They perceive and practice the power of God, and they remind themselves often that Christ is not dead, but risen and Lord of all, and because he's alive, has an impact and forms us even to this day. Okay. That's what it means to be a disciple. And then there's even more. Right? There's even more than all of that. So the expectation, the checklist is everything I just read and, and, and exceedingly more than all that. That is the call of Jesus to be like him. And I began to think through this, the question of, well, how do we even begin to attack this list? How do we even start to get to this? And this is what I think in a culmination of these four chapters that, uh, that Mark is going to address today. But I began to think about this this week, and a story popped into my mind, which I literally haven't thought about since the junior, my junior year of high school. Okay, this is like year 2000. And I began to think back, and I remember there was this gal that I wanted to date. Her name was Crystal. Okay? And I go over to Crystal's house, and I say, hey, you know, I wanna, well, I think I had talked to her before, I want to date you, but she said, you need to come over and meet my parents, which is terrifying. Okay? So I go over and I meet her dad, and her dad, as soon as I walk in, shakes my hand, sits me down on the couch, sets a gun on the table, wasn't loaded, I don't think, and then slides over an application. Okay? This is real. I'm not making this up. Slides over an application, and I begin to pour through this application. I had to check off these boxes that I would, and I would not do this. If I wanted to date Crystal, if this was to be my desire, that I had to fulfill this list, and I wanted to give you some of the things. It said, you will spend three to four evenings with our family. Okay? You will attend church with us two Sundays a month. I wasn't really a Christian. You will have monthly one-on-ones with Mark, who was the father. And you will maintain a 3.5 GPA. Okay. Luckily enough, I'm a genius, so no problem. Okay? You will not drink. Okay? You will not do drugs. You will not party. You will not speed when my daughter is in the car with you. And you will not drive a vehicle that has a bed or fold-down seats. Okay? It's real. And this list, I kid you not, was like three pages long of you wills and you won'ts. And I lied out of my teeth and checked every box. And said, of course, that's who I am anyway. And so I, ba- I dated Crystal for two weeks. <laughs> and it didn't work out. <laughs> And I began to think about this story this week, and I began to think like, man, you know, that is a crazy, crazy set of commands. A crazy set of demands to put on a 16, 17-year-old kid. But then I thought about, hey, you know, like, if, if I really thought it was worth it, uh, like, if I really thought Crystal was the one, if I thought Crystal was, was worth it, that she was just perfect. She was beautiful. She was all of the things that I had ever looked for in life. If she fulfilled my every desire, if she answered every question that I ever asked, if she died for me, I'm starting to transition to Jesus. In other words, if she was worth it, then I would check every box and I would live it faithfully because she would mean that much to me. 
Because for her to be mine meant I had to do these things, then I would gladly do them if I thought she was worth it. So the question for us church is, do you think Jesus is even worth it? Do do we as Christians, and and if you're here and you're not a Christian, again, welcome. It's great to have you here. Listen, I, I love the fact that you'd come in, step in, ask questions. Is that your story? Welcome. We love to have you here. But if you're here and a Christian, you've said, yeah, that guy, Jesus, the one we read about, he's Lord, he's Savior, he's everything to me. Is he actually worth it? So if the list that I just read from chapter 9 to chapter 12, and the further evidence we'll get right now about what it means to follow Jesus, I want you to ask the question, is he actually worth it to you? Is being in his kingdom, is being in his life, is having him be the Lord and Savior of all of you, is it worth it? Because if we can answer that question, yes, all the demands get significantly easier. But I fear, church, and I fear it in myself that I don't think he's as good as I might say he is with my mouth. Because if he's just okay, or if he's just average, or even if he's great, but he's not Lord and Savior, then let's leave the demands to the side, because it's not worth it. It really isn't. It's tough. But if he is who he says he is, if he's the Lord and Savior of your life, if he actually created this world, if he's done all of the things that we've read from the start of Mark and 10, if he's all the things that we've read since Genesis up until Mark, if he's all the things that he's promised to us all the way up until Revelation, that if we know that if in him, in his kingdom, he is coming back, restoring all things, there'll be no tear, no crying, no pain. Is it worth it? Because if you're already saying no, this sermon's gonna be really tough. And you're going to be frustrated, and you're going to be angry, and you're going to say, but I want to be there, but I just don't know if it's worth it to me. And I want you to know I fight with the same struggle this morning. Like, I have to battle this too. Daily wondering and counting the cost. What does it mean for me to follow Jesus and give everything over to be his disciple? So here's what's going to happen in the text. We're going to get in this first little section. First kind of this answer to the question, this final answer to the question of how do we be disciples? And then we're going to get, I think, in all of Scripture, maybe the best illustration of what a disciple looks like. So let's jump into it in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, here's the thing. If you've been tracking with us in the Gospel of Mark, the expectation here is that Jesus will not answer his question, but rather answer his question with another question. Because that's what he does when he deems that the question that's being asked is to trap him or to catch him or to fool him. Jesus is not an idiot. He's very smart. He's intelligent. And he sees the heart of man. So the expectation here is he's going to say and respond with a question. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Verse 29 says, Jesus answered right away, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one. And there was no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbors oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, now, the reality of this text is this is probably one of the most, if not the most famous tagline from all of Scripture. Right? It's, it's love God with everything you got and then love other people. 
It's every church's mission statement, right? It's love God, love people. Love God, love people. You ask anybody, hey, what are you doing in your ministry? Oh, man, we're just loving God, loving people. (laughs) Cool, man. Like you and everyone else. Good. It's loving God, loving people. This is the mission statement for the church. That we pour ourselves out. That we love God. And listen, he's listing off everything. Like heart. Everything you feel, everything that's deep down inside, right? Your mind, everything you think, every thought that will be held captive by the gospel, by Jesus, by the kingdom of God. All your might, right? All your, your kind of, your impetus, your strength moving forward, all your power, all your outward working, your inward working, everything you are, love God with that. And then take that same love and go and love other people. Love God, love people. The mission statement of the church, okay? mission statement of the church. Now, we oftentimes, I think, especially in our fancy church plants and stuff, we think this is a new idea. This love God, love people thing, as if we've like captured something special. It's not. It goes as old as Israel. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. These are the words that I command you. Today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they should be all frontlets on your eyes. So write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is not a new idea. This is God of the Old Testament giving the law to Israel to say, this is the summation of the law. We didn't figure something out in the New Testament. The whole time, love God, love people. Give your whole life lives to him, and then out of that love, go and love others. This is not just the mission statement of the church, this is the mission statement of God. Love God, love people. God is first and foremost about his glory, and then he's about bringing that glory into this world that gives us joy and grace and forgiveness and peace and hope and all the things that we love. Okay. Love God, love people. The mission of the church. Christian, if you're here, Christians, listen, your mission statement in life now. Okay, if you signed up, your mission statement in life is love God with all you got and then love people out of that. Okay. Now there's going to be nuances to each of you. You have different careers, different hopes, different desires, different families, different futures. Get all that. But your mission statement, the thing that in everything you do in everything you do, and everything you are that needs to try and fulfill, okay, that mission statement is to love God with everything and to love people. If you find yourself doing anything that is outside of that, you are outside the mission of God and not doing what you're supposed to do, if that makes sense. This is heavy. This is, this is the mission. This is what we're called to. Yeah. It's not just, hey, believe in this guy so you don't go to hell. It's not just, well, he makes me feel really good. Well, that's great, and I'm happy for that, and he should. But that's one piece of it. That's one piece of it. And the reality of this world and the reality of this life is you will walk through it, and oftentimes you will not feel good. There is brokenness, there is pain, there is hurt, but in the end there is still God. And he still deserves our worship. He still deserves all of us. And so do the people around you. We wrestle less with the God piece. We wrestle more with the others. 
So if life's coming at you and life is hard and life is difficult, okay, maybe this love God piece, you can be kind of frustrated with him, and that's fine, he can handle it. But then the, how do I step into loving the people around me, even when I'm stressed and I'm frustrated and I'm upset and all these bad things are happening around me, how do I care for the person next to me because they are more important than me? Love God, love people. If this is not as, as and listen, as God tells the Israelites, write this on your hearts, have this on your eyelids. What they would literally do, they have this even to this day. Orthodox Jews will wear what they call a phylactery. Okay? It is a leather band that goes around their head, and on the front is a leather box. And, and, and it is awkward looking. Like, it is not a fashion statement, right? Like, this thing, it just protrudes from your, it's like a creepy alien box, right? And inside is scripture. And literally, what they do, they place it right here. So as they walk through their day, especially morning prayers, that's when they all kind of have to wear them, they'll have them right here. So as they're praying, constantly the law of the Lord, which is summarized in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, the Shema as they know it, that everything in this would point them to, this is the way I pray. Love God, love people, give everything over and care for others. All of my prayers focused on these things, the law summarized. It's the same should be for us. Now, I don't propose that we all wear phylacteries, but I do propose that we read our Bibles. I do propose that we talk to people around us about the gospel. I do propose that we get into groups and community where we're able to share life and point each other back to gospel truth in Jesus so that constantly, consistently, we don't need to wear something on our heads. We are in community, surrounded by the scripture that is written both in our heart, our mind, and in front of us that we would live this out. Love God, love people. You will forget the mission of God the moment something more appealing and attractive comes before your eyes. And so will I. So keep it there all the time, okay? And don't forget it, okay? Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. Now, it seems at first glance that this scribe was crushing it, right? So he asks a question that Jesus doesn't respond with a normal question. He actually gives the real answer. Jesus answers, then the scribe says, you're right, that's exactly it. You got the answer correct. So it seems like they're on the same page. And so anytime you think you're on the same page and the person next to you that you're speaking with says, yeah, you're almost there, that's a letdown. So what is the scribe missing here? What aspect of this pursuit of faith and pursuit of the Christ is he not getting? Let's look in verse 35. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Now, by a show of hands, how many people just get that text right away? It is is confusing, to say the least. What are, we, what are we actually trying to delve into here? Why is Jesus calling out the scribes in this way? He's saying, hey, you know, you know what the scribes do is, is, is that they actually are trying to skirt Christ's authority because they're taking this son of David thing literally. Right? They're, they're taking it literally so he doesn't have the power and the authority uh, that, that, that he wants to have. And so I can kind of do my own thing. I can make my own rules as we see the scribes consistently do, the religious elite consistently do in the New Testament and even before. Okay. 
So, so they're trying to guess what, what this is essentially pointing to is Jesus saying, I'm Lord. Like, no, 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 you're trying to get out of my authority, and I'm telling you, no, I am the authority. Like, I'm the guy that even David, he was talking about me back then. He was talking about a communication between Father God and Jesus, saying, Jesus, sit here, and this is what happened. He quotes Psalm 110, which says this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Jesus, again, tacking a similar issue which has been prevalent throughout the Gospel of Mark, and that is that the Jews, the people of God, kept assuming that Jesus would show up and rid them of Rome. That again, the Israelites would be free, would have their own nation, they would be their own people, and no longer would Roman oppression be on top of them. So he's saying, listen, again, here's, here's what you're doing, scribes. You're still trying to subvert my authority. You're still trying to say, even in this moment, hey, this is the way I can wiggle my way out of this. This is different. You're going to take scripture. You're going to read it wrongly. You're going to contextualize it wrongly. And you're going to do your own thing because this way you can live your own life outside of the lordship of Jesus. And Jesus is like, that's not the way this goes. That's not the way this goes. Scribe, if you want to just repeat my answer as if you know what you're talking about, I see that you can quote the verses, but do you actually see me as Lord? Reiterating everything we've already talked about. Is he Lord to us? Are we actually willing to step into discipleship? Are we really going to count the cost? Do we really believe it's better? Is it trustworthy? That's the questions we have to deal with. Now, in the midst of all this, I think the point for us as we leave this place today is just to truly remind ourselves and ask the question, is he worth it? And what we're about to see is this illustration of this woman, this widow. And we're going to see how she would answer this question. Okay? Not just how she would hypothetically answer this question, but how I think she literally, and in this, in this moment, answers the question of, is he worth it? Is he worth everything? And hopefully we, we learn from all this. One thing before we jump into this. I want to talk just a second about love. Because in this whole process, a lot of it is love your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. Love, 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 love. And we talk about it here often. And listen, if you've been at the church long enough, you've heard this illustration before, but I can't get away from it because I like it, okay? But I have this thing that I call burrito love, okay? Yeah, it's as great as it sounds. <laughs> and here's the point. Love in our culture has lost its meaning, okay? Love in our culture has been, has been neutered, right? The power of that word has been taken away. So we use it when we say, I love you, Verity. I love you, Mom. I love you, Dad. I love you, Son. I love you, God. I love you, California Burrito. Right? Which, yeah. Okay. 
I love you, insert whatever your hobby is. I love you, insert whatever clothing you enjoy wearing. Oh, I love those, right? Oh, those are great. I love those. Oh, I love that. Love it, right? So, somehow, right, a pair of boots have been you are used in the same equivalent way as the parents who gave you life. Okay? There is a disconnect. There's something that's happened to this word. And so something I call burrito love. I, I do enjoy burritos, and I do enjoy uh, football, and I do enjoy things, right? So what, what we've created is this love pyramid, okay? Which sounds awkward, but... Um, on the bottom, think of it through kind of like a pyramid of nutritional value, okay? So at the bottom, you have, a, have your bottom rung, and that's all these things, right? It's, it's you, you love burritos, you love food, you love clothing, you love sports, you love insert your hobbies, all of that stuff gets piled into this, this bottom rung of love, okay? Uh, the, the next one up is kind of friends, right? I, I have a firm belief that people should come before boots, right? And so they're, they're here. Friends kind of become that, that second tier from the bottom. Okay, the, then the next tier up is, is family. And when I say family, I'm talking your, your uh, father, your mother, your extended family. And, and this is not, sometimes, you know, that can be kind of fidgety. That's not a word, but, you know, you can kind of move back and forth between those two if maybe you don't have really strong family or whatever it looks like. But family usually will tend to oftentimes trump even friends, okay? Um, above family is your spouse. So if you are married, your spouse needs to have precedent over those other three things, okay? And then on top is, is what? God, right? So on top is of this pyramid, this hierarchical, where do my priorities lie? Where does my love lie? Where does it begin? It has to be at the top with God. What happens in our world today what happens with Christians, what happens with just anyone, is we begin to move our pyramid levels to have a really messed up looking pyramid. Where for some reason, football works its way up to the top of the pyramid sometimes. Sundays come around, you treat your wives poorly, your friends poorly, you don't do anything and you leave the Bible on the desk never to be looked at. Or something happens where, hey, you know what, honey, um, the boys are more important. And so I'm going to make plans with them before communicating with you, before talking with you, before asking the question of, what do you think? And so again, our pyramid gets messed up. This is just very practical. You want to think through how to do love well? Keep it in this pyramid. God, spouse, family, friends, stuff, burritos, okay? Don't mix them up, okay? Don't, don't, don't play with this, okay? This is, this is helpful stuff. It has been for me. I still blow it. I mix them up all the time, but it's good to return to. So we think through love. What does it mean for us to love one another? It has to begin with God. You cannot, you will not be able to love your spouse, your family, your friends, or the things in this world if you cannot love God. Now, hear me. If you're here and you're non-Christian, you're like, no, I love stuff and I don't love God. I get that, okay? But I don't think it's the type of love that God offers. And I hope that doesn't offend you too much. There's a certain type of love with which God loves the world. It's that type of love that we can enter into as he loves us that we can pour out to this world.
but he is the wellspring of it. And the number one thing I think the scribe missed in his repetition of the verse from Deuteronomy, or sorry, from Psalm 110, I think he missed the very beginning. I think he got all the action part of it. I think what he missed is the Lord your God is one. I see, I think what he was missing is he got the, okay, I need to go and do a bunch of stuff. He was saved, he believed he was saved by a gospel of good works. And that will not, it cannot save you. I think the part he missed was the lordship, that the Lord, his God, was one, and he is good, and he is sovereign, and he is over all. If we miss this part, it all, it throws it all out of whack. So here we go. Verse, verse uh, 38. In his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces, have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Okay? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to juxtapose, I'm going to contrast this scribe and, and, and Jesus attacking the scribes here with the widow that we'll read in verses 41 through 44. So what do we learn about discipleship in these few verses, 38 through 40? First, discipleship is not about your presentation or appearance. Discipleship is not about your glory. Discipleship is not about your future or your mission. Discipleship is not about your status. Discipleship is not about giving God your leftovers. Discipleship is not about protecting what's yours. Verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he said to his disciples, or he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Okay? Discipleship is about God's appearance, God's presentation, and God's glory. Discipleship is about God's future and God's mission. Discipleship is about God's status. Discipleship is about giving God your first fruits, the best of you, not the leftovers. Discipleship is about protecting what's his. Discipleship is about giving all even when you have nothing. Discipleship is about needing only God in your life. Okay. The scribes had everything but they'll receive nothing. The widow had nothing, but she will receive everything. This woman has absolutely nothing outside of two coins. And when asking her the question, is he worth it? She shows her yes. She, knows, she shows her buy-in by tossing her two coins into the offering plate and saying, yeah, he's worth it. She had nothing and gave all that she had left to say, she's in, or I'm in, fully. And I wonder as a church, and I wonder even in my own heart, I began to analyze, if, if I saw that, right? If I saw, even let's just say at this church, I just knew someone was extremely struggling financially. And they walked up, and they, they just felt, you know what, God, I'm going to put everything in the offering box, right? Well, how would my heart react to that moment? Like, would, would I trust God enough in that to say, if that's her faith, and that's, or would I just come in with my wisdom and my strategy, my financial fortitude, and say, well, no, this is the way it should go down. You need to save that, you need to do this. 
And here's what I wonder. I wonder if the reason why Jesus can look at that and not just say, okay, do your thing, but really applaud and celebrate this moment, even though to us it might seem as terrible financial stewardship, is because the expectation of Jesus was that surrounding her would be thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women who call themselves disciples so that even when she gave everything, she would always have. That there was no point, there was no opportunity for this woman to ever lack because the church would come around her, would love her, would support her, would give her and take care of every need in her life because the church would rally around, would pray for her, would support her, would love her, would give her a home and a life and friends and community. And so Jesus can say, you know what, give it all because I'm creating a kingdom and I'm creating a people where you will never lack because the church lives this way. And when the church lives this way, no one experiences the lack of anything. They have love. They have peace. They have joy. They have community. They have provision. I wonder if that's why he was just like, this is it. Give it all. I'm putting something together that's better and bigger. And when we all start to buy into this, it changes the world. Changes the world. We talk about this a lot, or I hear it a lot. I always hear people saying, I want to change the world. I want to change the world. I might have shared this before. My favorite quotes says, Everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to wash the dishes. Everyone wants to do these grand, glorious things when it's like, No, just live your life faithfully today. What are you doing? How are you just sacrificing, giving over, and giving up, and saying, less of me, more of him? And listen, when we do this as a community, you will never experience lack. What happens in the church is three of you do it, 247 of us don't, and those people get burned out. And we sit with all our stuff, and we think we're great. When that's not what scripture points us to. When 250 people say, no, all right, it's worth it. I'm a disciple. I will buy in. Man, this place, and I don't mean this, I mean this city. It just looks different. It looks different. We start praying for each other on a dime. You don't care who's around. You don't care what's going on. You know, someone's hurting, you're going to talk to God for them right there, right then. You know, someone's in pain, you're going to pray for healing. God, I'm going to trust you, you're going to do something. You see someone who doesn't have the resource to go get something fixed, their car's broken down, you have the means, you give them money. Right, you see that someone needs a job and you're like, man, I don't know what to do here. You know what, if you can, in your power, you hire them. And you might be thinking, well, what, what about me? No, in the community of God, when we do this, when we become disciples, when we are the church, don't worry. You'll be fine. Okay, you'll be fine. So the last thing I leave us with is a juxtaposition one more time between crystal and the covenant that I had to enter into with her father. And Jesus and the covenant that we are offered to enter into with him. The difference between Crystal and her dad and this application was the minute I broke one of those, I was out. Right? All this stuff that I checked and said, I'm doing this, this, and this. The minute that I messed up on any of those, Mark said, you're done. The beauty of the gospel story. Why we can leave here and not feel burdened and freaked out and sad and broken because there's no chance we have to do this perfectly is because that is what the gospel says. You have no chance to do this perfectly. So Jesus did. 
And so we don't leave here hopeless. We live here hopeful because in the gospel, Jesus came in and said, all right, you can't do it. I will. Lives the life we couldn't live, dies the death we deserve, and raises on the third day to give us new life. So when we go out, we go out in confidence and in power. We can live this way. And when we don't, Jesus says, you're forgiven. Go and try again. Wow. That makes chapters 9 through 12 in this whole list of like, man, how do I do it? Somehow bearable. I've messed up already probably 15 times this morning. Thought things in my heart, thought things, felt things in my heart, thought things in my head, did things with my hands and my legs and all, that I sh- were probably not great. But the mercy comes right away. And so, listen, my invitation for us. After, and a lot of you guys have been here for a while. After these four chapters of saying, this is what a disciple is. This is what a disciple is. Be in his authority. Sit underneath him. Let's do it. Gosh, let, let's do it, church. And listen, I can't do it by myself. Like, I mean, I don't mean that as in like a, this emotional plea, like come. I'm saying I literally can't. And you can't. So let's get together. Let's resolve to say this is who we want to be. And in the midst of that note, at the end of the day, there's barely a choice because it's who we're supposed to be. Disciples of Jesus, by his power and strength, live out the fulfillment of the gospel mission of God that's been written since all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 and won't be fulfilled until Revelation 22. That's where we sit now. Let's, let's do this together. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I just want to acknowledge my own lack of capability to do this all that well. God, I, I repent of the times that even I've tried to go it alone or I thought I would just clench my fists really tight, God, to be able to prove it to you or to live in such a way God, that would make you happy or proud or think I'm good. God, we are not saved by a gospel of good works, but by a gospel who says you could barely do them. So I did them all for you. God, thank you that we we do because we're saved. We do because you've already done. God, forgive us when we fail. God, will we experience laughter and joy and excitement to be part of your mission? We experience those things to be disciples. God, would you move us as a church community, not just here at Redemption, but in the whole city? God, I, I love how you've raised up so many godly men and women in this city to be part of your answer and your mission to the city of Flagstaff. God, use us, unite us. Just, Holy Spirit, listen, we cannot do this without you changing us, transforming us, making us new, letting us think new thoughts, believe new things, feel new things. And so, Holy Spirit, we lean on you right now, God, to do all the work necessary in us and through us, God, to change the city and change the world. God, I'm in. I want to be your disciple in everything. Thank you that when I fail... You just give me a hug and say, try again.
God, we celebrate you for the rest of this service, God, and the glory that you deserve as your disciples. It's your name we pray. Amen. So now, as always, we take just a couple minutes to sit and reflect on God's word. And, uh, and I was praying with our prayer team beforehand and just saying, like, I feel like today's word is just heavy. And it was heavy on me. I'm just like,